Good morning. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Matt. Uh, if you're visiting uh, for the dedication or otherwise, welcome. And uh, It's good to have you with us. Uh, we are uh, continuing a series through some of the elements of uh, the covenant that's uh, being put together. And as I understand, there's been some um, vigorous conversation in small groups about it, uh, which is good and healthy, and um, I hope that that continues on. Uh, so hopefully I can enlighten at least one element, namely practicing unity. Uh, and yeah, let's see how we go. Let me pray. Uh, God of love, we thank you that uh, you are uh, three and one, that you are uh, unity, that the whole of creation is patterned after your unity, your beauty, uh, your relational um, character. And God, help us to embody that. Help us to be the kind of church uh, say that we are united, but Lord, so that we can say that a reflection of what you are like and what the world ought to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not entirely sure I'm the best person to talk about this topic. If you know me, uh, you know that I'm, well, you might know, I'm overcritical and cynical and sharp and sarcastic and cantankerous, nitpicking, withering, biting, derogatory, so on and so forth. I know. I did. I did. And I did, I did wonder about the wisdom of this. Uh, so uh, mainly uh, after, I, I knew this would fall after Ashley's 30th and I said to Andy, maybe it's not a good idea. I just don't know how tight I'll be. But then last Sunday I was sitting here and the sermon started to form in my head and I said to Andy, have you started preparing yet? He said, no, no, not yet. And I said, can I, can I take it back? Uh, so I did. And uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, or, well, actually, let's just see how it goes. But, um, <laughs> uh, but, but I'm, not, I'm not exactly a model of tolerance. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't suffer fools gladly and, and that kind of thing. So, but thankfully, unity is not about tolerating one another. In fact, I'm going to just come right out and say this, what is the central idea of my sermon. Um, that Christian unity doesn't come from us. It's not based in us. Um, let's keep in mind that we can find unity, uh, we can find unity uh, out, outside of the church. So unity is not uh, unique to the church. So we can find unity uh, within communities, we can find unity within racial and ethnic groups, we can find unity within families. And, and of course, we can even find ugly examples of unity. We can find unity within, say, this is going to sound strange, but within like organised crime. Uh, we can find unity within um, people who, let's just say that they, they unify around uh, corruption so as to maybe cover up some sordid affair, that kind of thing, a, a bottom left uh, example. Uh, and in fact, you know, you can find unity amongst uh, regimes that commit uh, genocide even. Uh, in fact, I argue that genocide requires uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, single-mindedness. So, you know, unity is something that we can find in all sorts of places. Um, 
In other words, unity is not necessarily good in and of itself. And that should cause us to be cautious whenever we talk about Christian or church unity or whatever, because often we can make it ultimate, as if unity comes at the cost of everything. Uh, And we need to be extremely uh, concerned whenever that argument is made, I think. Now, in all those examples I've just mentioned, unity arises from some natural bond. So, communities are typically um, united uh, or unified by their proximity or by shared interests or whatever. Uh, Racial groups are typically unified by national identity of some kind or, or some kind of identity. And families are united by blood and, and, and oftentimes, you know, proximity and living space. And criminals and conspirators and genocidal regimes might be unified by the goals that they seek. But Christian unity is distinct from other kinds of unity in that it's not reliant on who we are or where we live or what we do. It's completely reliant on something else. From the time of the earliest church... Uh, or, sorry, during the time of the earliest church, I'm talking about within the first sort of 50 years, the greatest dilemma and the greatest dispute that arose was what do we do about Gentiles? That is, what do we do about non-Jews? Because the earliest church, of course, was a Jewish church. And then when Gentiles started to convert, it raised a serious theological problem for them because that had never really happened much before. Um, God's people had been the people of Israel. And so they faced the question, do Gentiles have to become Jewish before they become followers of Jesus or can Gentiles become Jesus' followers as Gentiles? Now, to us, we're like, most of us are sitting here as Gentiles going, but for them, this was a significant theological issue. And it was no minor matter, because at stake in this debate was how the church should understand God's faithfulness to Israel. If God had made certain promises to Israel, and suddenly it seemed like those promises were being turned upside down because the Gentiles were coming in, does that mean that God's unfaithful? And that's an issue that takes up a lot of the New Testament. I mean, the whole book of Romans is basically about that issue. Um... The majority view at the beginning of the church was that since God's promises to Israel still stood, Gentiles would need to submit to the demands of the Jewish law by becoming Jewish before they could become followers of Jesus. So this was the view of like James and early era Peter. Uh, They believed that you had to become Jewish first. But on the other hand, some Christians in this time came to believe that Gentiles could in fact become Christians without first becoming Jewish. Paul is the obvious example here. Uh, And he, um, he, he, I mean, a lot of his writing is written in the midst of this debate, uh, you know, with Romans, but also other writings. So in Ephesians, Paul strives to outline the unity that exists in the church. The whole book is basically a book of unity. And he's writing about that even despite the apparent divisions between Jews and Gentiles. So his words are worth reading at length here. Uh, we're going to do, do that. He says this, So then, 
Remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, quite a nickname, a um, circumcision made of flesh by human hands. Remember that you were being from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were uh, far off have been brought near by Christ. Yeah, it's to my hair. Such an effort, Peter, to get this under my hair. But thank you. I know. I should not do this. I should just let you do it, Graham. Anyway, back to Paul. Is this working? Yeah, okay. Um, where was I up to? But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are... uh, you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Ephesians 2. So for Paul, Christ has brought about a new humanity, one that joins Jews and Gentiles together into one people. And this unity has nothing to do with the efforts of either group. It's not by their striving that they're joined together, but it's entirely based on the work of of Jesus, especially his death, which brings in those who are far off. And for Paul, this is so significant, this reality of the Jews and the, especially the Gentiles being brought in, it's so significant that he refers to that as the mystery of Christ. Sorry, I didn't, uh, oh no, there it is, yep, thank you. (laughs) Uh, He says, surely you've already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you. And how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, and this is what he means by the mystery, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery of Christ is that the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile 
would be broken down and that they would become a new people, not, de- not defined by their ethnicity or culture or parentage or history, but by the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps the most important thing we learn from this is uh, something I mentioned earlier. This unity is not derived from us. It's completely the work of Christ. And this is great because it means that that unity is not reliant on some overcritical, cantankerous cynic like me and that even I can participate in the unity that Christ creates. Because, of course, we don't create unity. We enter into unity that already exists in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't fail to be united or to be unified, because of course we can fail it. We can fail at it. But if we fail to be unified, it's only because we've failed to live into the reality that Jesus has brought about and that he is bringing about. All this raises the question, though what even is unity for Christians? And perhaps more importantly, what isn't? unity for us because this is a word unity I mean that gets thrown around a lot within churches uh, and I'm not exactly sure that we know what always know what we're talking about for a start unity isn't simply tolerating one another we are commanded by Jesus not to tolerate one another but to love one another And in fact, Jesus makes clear that our love for one another will be how the world knows that we are his disciples. John 13. But in saying that, unity arising from such love is not simply about being nice to one another either. Don't get me wrong, like being nice to one another is usually a good thing. Uh, Yeah. Not much good at that, but um, <laughs> but but it, but yeah, sure. Look, as your default setting, nice. Okay, but the love that we are to show to one another is the same that was revealed by Jesus when He died on the cross, and that's not just niceness. He loved us even when we had abandoned Him, struck Him, tortured Him, and killed Him. He loved self-sacrificially and our love for one another is to be of the same kind. And Paul says something like this in his letter to the Philippians. A letter, by the way, written to address a conflict within that community. This is turned off, is that alright? Oh no, there we go. No, back, yep, good, sorry. Um, So uh, in chapter 4 of Philippians, I think, uh, Paul uh, mentions two women and he says, I hope you, Euodia and Sintiki, have, I, I, I pray that you can have the same mind, which suggests that there's a conflict between the two uh, women. Uh, earlier in the letter, he of course says this very famous passage um, known as the Canotic passage. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is the kind of love that we're to show one another and that is the basis, folks, of our unity. Our unity isn't based on dishonestly ignoring our differences or disagreements or dislikes. It's not like just pretending to get along. It's not unity. Our unity is based on our willingness to enter into the transformation that Jesus has wrought by being willing to follow him in seeing such differences as secondary. Secondary in light of God's love for us and the love we ought to have for one another. Let's remember that Jesus himself offered uh, sometimes withering critique to those who committed injustices and who oppressed others. Critique that even extended to his own friends. Jesus wasn't shy about you know, telling his friends that they were off the mark. Paul's criticisms of various churches also come to mind. Sometimes they're they're almost, you know, they're, they're, quite, they're quite brutal criticisms. Um, because unity doesn't mean false peace. It means love for one another, including in upholding what is good and true and beautiful. And sometimes this means creating conflict in order to resolve our problems. In fact, we can't be peacemakers unless there's a conflict. Sometimes we have to create those conflicts in order to bring the real issues to the surface so we can deal with them. And none of that is opposed to unity. Another thing that our unity is not is that unity is, our unity is not based on human authority. There is a tendency, uh, and I don't think that's the case here, but there is a tendency in some church settings to achieve unity through demanding submission to leaders. And we are, let me be really clear, we are called to submit to leadership. But there are important conditions placed on this. We are, after all, called to exercise discernment. And we are to discern together whether we and our leaders are thinking and acting in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I said, or as I uh, implied, we're fortunate to be in a community where that, I, I think that's true. But it's not always the case in every community. And we can't take for granted that it might always be the case here. Right? Um, because there'll be another generation of leaders in the future and we have to continue to discern whether or not we're in line with the gospel. We shouldn't submit ourselves to leadership that thinks and behaves contrary to the gospel. And that's important for at least two reasons. One, and this is relevant especially in our time, we shouldn't be willing to indulge abuse when it occurs through leaders. And two, our unity is not in itself our final aim. Our unity is based on something greater than itself, the good news of Jesus Christ. And ultimately we're united by Jesus, not by leadership. 
Leadership helps to order the unity that already exists in Jesus. Look, in the end, my point is rather simple, actually. Um, It's this, our unity is in Christ and nothing else. And we can't make this happen on our own. We can only achieve true Christian unity by participating in the reality that Christ has brought through his life, death and resurrection. So how will we know if we're living into this unity as Christians? How will we know? Whenever we are able to lay down our rights and desires for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Whenever we cross boundaries that divide people in the world, such as race, age, sex, class, whatever, in the name of Christ. Whenever we share what we have with one another, especially with those in need. Whenever we're able to speak the truth without falling out of fellowship with one another. Whenever we're able to be committed to one another's lives, even when it's inconvenient, even when it interferes with our freedom. Whenever our love for one another is a witness to the world of Christ's love for us and them. Whenever we do these things, we demonstrate our unity. And I'm sure we can think of innumerable, innumerably more examples. So, okay. I've made the claim that our unity is not based on anything we do, but is based on Christ's work. Still, we are called to participate in the unity that Christ has brought about. And this is difficult. So there's a Dutch theologian, who's the former Secretary General of the World Council of Churches, a guy named, here, you ready? Willem Adolf Wissertehuft. He said this, he, well he claimed that church unity was like peace and he said, we're all for it, but we're not willing to pay the price. So, what can we do to embrace unity? This is something to be discussed constantly. I don't have all the answers, but I've got six points. Like, not a three-point sermon. It's like twice as good. I don't know. Um, It's not, but whatever. One, we set our eyes upon Christ, the one who emptied himself for the sake of others. Let us be shaped by his life, recognising that it's not by striving to create unity that we achieve unity, but by living into what Christ has already done. The only unity worth seeking is that which flows from Jesus. Two, in talking about baptism, we see our baptism And not any other identity markers like race, age, sex, class, whatever, as the thing that binds us together. We have died and been raised with Christ in baptism. That's what Paul teaches us in Romans 6, right? Baptism is not just about you getting up and saying to everyone, yes, I'm truly a Christian, wet me. But it's about... um, It's about saying that the water is a symbol of dying, going under and rising again. 
It's a symbol that is all the way through the Bible. Have you noticed that creation, the waters split, uh, that creation itself comes out of death or non-existence into life? Or Noah's Ark, they go through water. Or the Exodus, they go through water. Or they come into the Promised Land and they go through water. Or Jonah and he goes through water. And it's just over and over again because it's a symbol that recurs over and over in our story of entering death, coming out and being raised. That's what baptism is. That's why we do it. We need to see that and nothing else as the thing that binds us. We have died and been raised. Everything else is rubbish in comparison. Three, pray for unity. Recognising that our prayers are dangerous (laughs) because they will demand that we become the kind of people who can live in unity. If we're going to pray for something, be warned that the response might be, cool, you should do that. Uh, um, So four, recognise that common notions of freedom are false. I want to use a stronger word, but this is being recorded. So we will not gain life by maintaining our distance from others and doing whatever the hell we want. That's not how we're going to gain life. We will gain life by binding ourselves to one another in love, even when it's inconvenient, even when it interferes with what we think we want. And this isn't just like, oh yeah, we're social creatures, humans need, you know, humans need other people and loneliness is bad. All of that is true, incredibly important to recognise. The... the, you know, the basic reality is that we are created to be together. The pattern of the universe based on a Trinitarian God is that we are created to be with one another. And we will find life by giving up the kind of freedoms that we, are, we have been trained in our world to want. Because actually, as hopefully we've all figured out, there's, there's, there's nothing but emptiness there because we just want more and more and more. We need to confront our notions of freedom. Five, we need to celebrate communion regularly. I know this is the barrow that I push, but I'm going to push it again. Because in communion, we're all invited to the Lord's table, all of us. And we, are, we all consume the same meal of Christ's body and, uh, body and blood, regardless of who we are. Imagine, you know, imagine a church where that was the central symbol. Like, you know, shock horror that communion would be at the centre of our liturgy. But, you know, that's, that, was the, that, that was the way from the early church onwards, that communion is at the centre of things. Because the bodily, when we, our body is trained to, to go, uh, to do that act over and over again, all the time, to remember that we eat together, that we celebrate together, regardless of who we are, it, that shapes us into those kinds of people. Our liturgy changes us into the kind of people we worship like. And so let's do that more. Do it in your home groups. Like we're Baptist. Anyone can run it. It's great. You know, I came from a denomination where only ordained people could do it. And there was some good stuff about that. But you don't have to worry about that. So like just do it all the time. Uh, Six. Love your brothers and sisters. Not in some like warm feeling way, uh, in, that's fine, but uh, not just in that way and not just in some abstract way, oh yeah, I love everyone, 
but in real practical ways. And let that love be our primary message to the rest of the world. How can I be sure that these things will lead to unity? Um, but even, but, <laughs> it's, better, it's slightly better than that. Because even an overcritical, cantankerous cynic like me can be transformed by these practices as I've experienced. I've had the privilege of working and ministering with folks from all different denominational backgrounds, some of them very, very different to me. At one time, I got a photo even, I rushed this in at the last minute, thanks Rosemary. Uh, It's a really dark, really bad photo. um, So this is um, the one time when I was arrested... (laughs) alongside a group made up of Uniting Church ministers, a Catholic priest, a Baptist pastor, uh, an Anglican leader, a female Anglican leader, whoa, yeah, um, and an Anglican priest and a gay Pentecostal. Okay, so, you know, beat that. Um, I don't... (laughs) Okay, because people who might not normally talk with one another very much, and we got arrested together, peacefully protesting for people seeking, you know, refugee status. Not, we weren't just like having a party in Tony Abbott's office, right? But, but or, or, well, but um, anyway, miracles do happen, I guess, is the, is the, is the lesson, folks. Like all those people can, can be friends and stuff. Um, or, more accurately, God is uniting all things in heaven and on earth and we get to be a part of that. I'm going to finish up with a prayer, as I, you know, you know that I like to do. By uh, this time, by Thomas Merton. Let's pray. Our, uh, oh God, we are one with you, and you have made us one with you. You've taught us that if we are open to one another, you dwell in us. Help us to preserve this openness and to fight for it with all our hearts. Help us to realise that there can be no understanding where there is mutual rejection. Oh God, in accepting one another wholeheartedly, fully, completely, we accept you. And we thank you and we adore you and we love you with our whole being because our being is your being, our spirit is rooted in your spirit. Fill us then with love. And let us be bound together with love as we go our diverse ways, united in this one spirit which makes you present in the world and which makes you witness to the ultimate reality that is love. Love has overcome. Love is victorious. Amen.